Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the gospel we are going to hear on Sunday. Uh, this evening, the gospel we have before us is the gospel concerning the labors in the vineyard. So without uh, much further ado, I'm just going to jump right in here. And this is, uh, again, the gospel that comes to us from chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, the labors in the vineyard. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarii a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarii. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarii. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Amen. Uh, Before we engage this text, by the way, I am flying solo, so if you do have any questions, uh, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or as always, you can go to my website at jeholcraft.org and just hit uh, contact there. And uh, I will gladly respond to your emails. Yeah, I look forward to anything that you would have to uh, sh- share with me. So, my dear listeners, here again, we have our Lord teaching in parables. Here again, we have Jesus expressing profound truths with simple stories and images that engage our mind, that engage our heart. Recall that in the Old Testament, The use of parables is a reflection of an ancient, culturally universal method of teaching an ethical lesson applicable to everyday life. And how were these done? Simply by using symbolic stories with concrete concrete characters and actions. Most of the time, 
The original audience that had first heard these stories was left to draw their own conclusions. Other times, the evangelists provided an explanation of Jesus' story. Often what we see in parables is this kind of indirectness, which makes the wisdom of Jesus inaccessible to hostile literalists. This is why in the nature and function of the parable it is meant to reveal and at the same time conceal. The parable always invites. The mystery that lies behind each and every parable has this way of provoking within us an invitation. If we are serious about our faith, the parable has the power to draw us in. And if we are not serious about our faith, the mystery underneath each and every parable, well, is just disregarded and we go on our way. You see, again, the wisdom behind these parables. I would say to some degree, Christ is just not inviting, but he does it in a very disarming way. He has us drawing back and contemplating more deeply the things that he had said. Now, the parable of the workers in the vineyard in today's gospel serves in many ways as a corrective to false notions of entitlement and merit. Huh? By way of some historical context, the story reflects the socio-economic background of Palestine at the time of Jesus. Okay, here again we have Jesus embodying the principles of of the new evangelization current to his time, meaning people where they're at and engaging moral principles through an evangelization of the imagination. Huh? Remember what we have talked about as it relates to the evangelization of the imagination. Evangelize with images. This is the wisdom behind the parable. So as the parable today challenges our sense of justice, justice, we are made to understand the full impact of the story. Let us first start out with a sequence of events in the parable. Here we have the householder hires laborers for his vineyard about 6 a.m. for denarii, which in many cases would be considered a fair day's wage, right? In a way, we are already given a hint of the householder's generosity as he engages laborers at varying hours during the day. The workers who were hired first appeal to common sense, you know, equitable treatment, logic, and reason. Again, this is fair, huh? I think this is where we can all insert ourselves into this parable, which is always the great thing about a parable, because parables are always so personal. And when Jesus teaches in parables 2,000 years ago, they have that capacity to transcend time where we can immediately insert ourselves into many of the parables, and in so doing, draw out the richness from them. So, in light of those workers who were first appealing to common sense, I think we can identify with that, right? So, their complaint is not necessarily that the last hired received a payment, but that if the householder was so generous with the last, then certainly he might provide them with a maybe in today's terminology, a bonus for, endure, for having endured the heat of the whole day. The fact of the matter is that from the purely human, logical point of view, they had reason to complain, right? I mean, it's fair. And we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because I think this is very much 
a part of what this parable is about. However, this parable is not about ethical and fair labor management, but rather about the radical nature of God's generosity. And in many ways, discipleship of the inbreaking kingdom of God. The radical moment of the parable, as it is indicated in 2016, right? Remember those verses? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Is noted in chapter 20, verses 8 to 9, as those who were employed not only receive payment in reverse order, but also receive equal payment for their efforts. Okay, this is the anomaly of the parable. This is the moment where we read the parable and we say, huh? The parable reaches its crescendo in verse 15 with the question, am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? The owner of the vineyard, here in this case, my friends, reserves the right to pay his employees not on the basis of their own merits, but rather on the basis of his own generosity. If you were to draw back and ask the question, is there precedence for such action in the Old Testament? The answer is a resounding yes. You know, such quote-unquote illogical generosity finds its roots and deepest meaning in the Old Testament understanding of God, the Creator, who is good and generous to all who turn to Him. This is the God in whom Jesus believed and lived, of course. But in the person of Jesus, my friends, the divine compassion, mercy, and goodness surpass the divine justice. Therefore, all who follow Jesus as his disciples and friends must imitate this extraordinary compassion and lavish generosity and never question, deny, or begrudge it. Our Lord is not a God who holds grudges, okay, but a Lord who forgives and gives. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ reveals his identity to us in the Old Testament. Huh? You go back to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Perhaps many of us feel strongly with the disgruntled workers of verse 12. <laughs> okay. How often have we known whimsical employers who have compensated lazy or problematic workers far too generously, rather than acknowledging the faithful, dedicated, day-in, day-out workers? We may ask ourselves, how can God be so unfair? How can God overlook his most faithful workers? Underneath this parable is the issue of bargaining with God. From the very beginnings of religion, it has been assumed that we mortals can bargain with the gods to obtain from them what we want. And again, Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. How many times have we experienced this in our belonging to and service in the church? Some may grumble and claim that their long, dedicated, tireless service qualifies them instantly for maybe higher pay, higher rank, greater privilege and prestige. You know, that 
that human appetite, that sense appetite of power, prestige, and pleasure. It is precisely at moments like this that we must humbly acknowledge that we are like those 11th hour workers. Not one of us deserves the blessings that God has prepared for us. Our grumbling and lateral gazing often leads to serious resentments that are hard to shake off. Have you experienced this? <laughs> I have spoken with a great number of people who have not only experienced this, but all who are also going through this right now, and it is very hard for them to shake this, this sense of resentment. All our good work gives us no claim upon God. How much less do we have the right to demand, even if we have done everything we ought to do, that we should be honored and rewarded by God in a special manner as if we were such meritorious or, or, or indispensable persons in his service. The word entitlement does not belong in the vocabulary of God. Now, again, is there something called a just wage? Sure there is. And, and certainly when we talk about a, a just wage within a, a socioeconomic uh, construct, there's discussions to be had. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about bigger picture stuff as it relates from us to God. And in the end, understanding providentially that God always does provide for us. Now, as it relates to this resentment piece, now you have heard me speak on this before in the parable of the prodigal son, huh? In the parable of the prodigal son, you have a brother who suffered from the disease of entitlement. But father, what gives? In many ways, the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the labors in the vineyard have a lot of similarities, okay? Particular to this whole entitlement with the brother. You know, so, so the brother, he's agitated that his father would celebrate with the feast of the fatted calf. Why was he so agitated? Huh? Because there was a built-in expectation that he was going to get his, right? And what comes out from expectation? Expectation leads to disappointment. And disappointment breeds resentment. As sons and daughters of God, my dear friends, we have to appreciate this truth. Expectation leads to disappointment, and disappointment breeds resentment. It's interesting in the case of the brother to the father. Note that one verse in the parable of the prodigal son. This son of yours, he's so resentful. Then he now looks upon his brother, not even as his brother, this son of yours. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how far resentment takes us? Do we expect things from God? Is this why we are disappointed in God? Is this why we resent God? Is this why we no longer believe in God? Is this why we have left our faith? Because we have this built-in expectation of an understanding of of God that doesn't exist, justice and mercy. Human logic is limited, <laughs> but the mercy and grace of God has no limits or boundaries. On this topic, I was reflecting with Donna DeMarco, reading up on uh, the relationship between justice and mercy. And I, I love what he has to say here. And I'm, I'm going to read from 
uh, Donald DeMarco's work, The Heart of Virtue. He says this as it relates to um, justice and mercy. Justice is rational and measured. Mercy is immeasurable. Justice can be commanded. Mercy must be freely given. There are halls for justice, but there are hearts for mercy. Magistrates are just. The godly are merciful. Justice is embodiment in the law. Mercy transcends the law. The law must be studied. Mercy must be practiced. I love that. Huh? We have there a nice juxtaposition between justice and mercy. In many ways, um, what this uh, topic is about. So, God doesn't act by our standards. This means that we must see and accept God in our sister and brother, just just as God has wished them to be. When God chooses a person, granting him or her particular graces, blessings, or gifts, God does not reject the other person nor deprive him or her of his grace. God's graces and blessings are boundless, and each person receives his or her own share. God's choice of a person or people should not be a cause of pride for those chosen or of rejection for those not chosen. It is only when both parties live in humility and simplicity and recognize together a God of love and mercy at work in their lives that they will begin to learn the real meaning of love and justice and finally come to reconciliation in deep mutual understanding. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches us that we must overcome jealousy and envy. I want to get into this a little bit because certainly this is, this is what's going on in some of these verses, right? Those who, those who came at the first hour grumbled against the landowner. He said to one of them in reply, my friend, I am not cheating you. Are you envious because I am so generous. You know, the 10th commandment, as the catechism highlights, uh, forbids avarice arising from a passion for riches and their attending power. Envy, as the catechism notes, is sadness at the sight of another's goods and the immoderate desire to have them for oneself. And for this reason, it is a capital sin. Envy is that fault in the human character that cannot recognize the beauty and uniqueness of the other and denies them honor. In order to approach God, who is total goodness, beauty, and generosity, this attitude must be broken from within. Envy can no longer see. Our eyes remain nailed shut. What can we do to move beyond this blindness and hardness of heart? So it is, we have this call to enter into discipleship. And I was hoping to talk a little bit about this this evening, because when you talk about vineyard, you have to talk about discipleship, right? When you talk about this vocation that has been entrusted us to go into the field and work, we are also talking about discipleship, okay? And it is to remember, discipleship is not a specialized vocation uh, within the general Christian calling. 
Rather, all are called to the kingdom of God. And discipleship is the lived existential means of arriving there, of existing there. The gospel knows no secondary category for Christians. That of mere believing in contrast to that of an ardent disciple. That being said, by definition, the believer must become a disciple. huh? Because we can say that the believer is constituted as disciple by the very act of believing since faith at its root is nothing other than the human response prompted by grace to the call of God in Christ. I've talked about this before. Remember the Old Testament vision of faith. The Hebrew word for faith or faithfulness is emunah, which literally means firm response. That's why you never really see the word faith, but faithfulness. We see this translated in Paul, Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26, the obedience that is faith or the obedience that springs from faith. Paul is building on the vision of faith in lieu of Christ, the Old Testament vision of faith or faithfulness. And so what, li- what lies at the heart then of our belief is discipleship. It, consequently, why prayer is so important. If faithfulness is about the firm response and prayer is to ask, what do we need to do? Listen. Remember the word obedience, ob adire, to listen. If we're going to ask, then we need to listen. This is why prayer in of itself is about conversation with God. So once we realize our sonship in Christ, once we realize our relationship with God, we are going to be more disposed to in turn listen to what he has to say and then live out more faithfully our discipleship. The word disciple, by the way, has at its root this idea of a pupil, one at the feet of a master. Well, we are at the feet of Jesus Christ, master teacher, who shows us that what lies at the heart of the Christian Catholic vision and responding to God's will is to first cry, Abba, Father. This is the genius of Paul, Romans 8, 15, Abba, Father. So, Although discipleship may be lived in uh, widely different ways and growth uh, as discipleship is a never-ending affair, every person without exception is called to be a disciple of Jesus and the kingdom belongs to none but his disciples because every person is called to be in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's out from that sonship that we gain a deeper understanding of that. Now, we have to take note here. In the previous chapter, Jesus declared that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who have the attitude of children, right? Chapter 19, verse 14. And he again refers to the kingdom when affirming that it would be difficult for the rich to enter. Chapter 19, verse 23. The nature, growth, and consummation of the kingdom of God are clearly... The central concern of Jesus' preaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And if the two previous episodes with the rich young man and with the disciples focused on the initial requirement of uh, renunciation in order to follow Jesus, the parable we are talking about now explores two further aspects, that of work for the kingdom and that of the worker-disciples' relationship to their master and to each other, okay? 
The deeper issue, the deeper issue in this parable is about the interior attitude and motivation of those who answer the call. What drives us to do what we do? You know, again, motus operandi. What operates our motives? Why do we do what we do? Where is our heart? And only God knows that, right? Only God knows where your heart is at. But we have to ask that question. Just not from time to time, but all the time. Because that is the question that lies underneath every examination of conscience. Why do we do what we do? And if we can answer that question with clarity, then we will be well on our way in our journey to the heart of God. There's something else here that strikes me about this parable. Five times the text refers to the owner of the vineyard as, quote-unquote, going out to search for the workers. He goes out at the first, third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hours of the day. His repeated action shows not only a determination to provide an adequate number of workers for the cultivation and harvesting of his vineyard, above all, it manifests a passion for all those who are called. We can even say that he exhausts himself in making sure that no person who is looking for work will be excluded from the enterprise of his vineyard and therefore from a relationship with himself as his owner. Our discipleship, my friends, has to be driven by that same kind of hour-to-hour determination. Yes, we are called to imitate the radicality, if you will, of uh, this house owner who goes out time after time after time. And what does that mean? Well, that brings us back full circle to the topic of generosity, right? True generosity demands a measure of self-sacrifice. What do I mean? To give away something that one has no use for or would readily throw away does not capture the essence of generosity. Say, for example, we have clothes that we never wear anymore and we're going to the Salvation Army. Is that generous? Well, yeah. I mean, do people need those clothes? Sure. But you have to ask yourself the question, where is the sacrifice in it? And it's a question I can't have that answer to because I don't know where your heart's at. But it's a question we have to ask nonetheless. Where is our heart? Remember what the word sacrifice means. Secum fise, to make holy. If there are pangs in what we do, (laughs) in our generosity, then God is truly working on your heart. Because through generosity, through that sacrificial gift, one expands his soul. And if it is through generosity that we find our soul expanding for other then it is the vice of greed and envy that contracts it. Thus, we need to see the wisdom of this parable and imitate God's merciful generosity. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.